Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing spontaneous pneumothorax. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speakers. Hello, my name is Jamie and I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine and can be found at Twitter on, at uh, AppMcDreamy. Hi, I'm Dr Phil, one of the ED consultants and I am at the ED consultant. Uh, hi, I'm Bill. I'm one of the ED consultants. I'm nowhere. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Uh, we've gathered here somewhere near the Earth's core in the underground world of ED uh, to discuss spontaneous pneumothorax. And, uh, chaps, this is obviously different to tension pneumothorax, isn't it? So your, uh, your tension pneumothorax is essentially a medical emergency. And so uh, these uh, patients should be picked up on clinical assessment. Never get a chest x-ray of your tension pneumothorax, otherwise you will go down as history as one of the, uh, the noddies. Yeah, they always seem to end up as part of uh, radiology teaching for medical students. They show you the, uh, the x-ray. And this should not be an x-ray that you should ever see. Uh, okay, so then uh, we'll cover tension pneumothorax in a separate podcast, but I suppose it's best place to start is chaps. Um, what actually is a pneumothorax? Basically, the air, there's a leak which is a two-way leak between the lung and the space between the lung and the chest wall. Um, This fills with air which is not under pressure. Uh, This causes the lung to collapse away from the chest wall and the patient to experience a number of symptoms which can, uh, well, the severity of those symptoms is very variable, often depending on the patient and the size of the pneumothorax. Okay, and we uh, distinguish between primary and secondary pneumothoraces, don't we? Yeah, we do. Um, So primary pneumothorax is usually in younger people who've got no underlying uh, lung pathology. Um, The secondary pneumothorax is often in people who are older, who've got quite a significant smoking history, usually people over 50, and they've got underlying lung disease such as COPD, um, which can either be seen on the chest x-ray or you have a suspicion of it when you're examining the patient or when you're taking their past medical history. So, uh, Phil, how would these uh, patients present shorter breath, I guess? So, yeah, so obviously one of the things is they could present is shorter breath. Um, often they have a, a pruritic star type of chest pain, but also they can present as if they're having a, an asthma exacerbation. Uh, and often uh, the pneumothor- primary pneumothoraces can, uh, pneumothoraces can occur in patients who are asthmatic, they're generally tall, thin males, and so you should always have uh, primary pneumothorax on your differential list for anyone who presents acute short breath or with a pruritic chest pain. I think that's the, uh, that was in one of my final papers as well, was the one mark question, tall, thin, uh, young man presents short breath, what's the most likely diagnosis? So, uh, Bill, what will your approach to these patients be? So you've got a patient presenting with pruritic chest pain, uh, shortness of breath, um, what's, what's your approach going to be for the patient? So usually, as with most patients in the emergency department, we need to sort of rule out anything that's life-threatening. So examining them, thinking about airway, breathing, circulation, how are they? Do they look well? Do they look unwell? Um, If they're looking well, um, history, full examination, and hopefully, uh, but not always, you pick up the signs of a pneumothorax, so reduced air entry on one side and um, an increased percussion note when you're tapping the chest, but if it's a very small pneumothorax, uh, sometimes you don't hear anything different, or if the patient's quite a large patient. 
and sometimes those signs may be absent. Mm. And I suppose it's, uh, as you said, so people with an underlying uh, lung condition may uh, develop a pneumothorax, uh, so it's important to remember that before going down some line. So for example, I, I, I saw a patient with um, COPD presented very short of breath and we were about to start NIV, but because of reduced air entry on one side, we went for a chest x-ray first and thankfully didn't start the NIV, confirmed there was a pneumothorax and went down a completely different line of, of treatment. With the chest x-ray, so we now just do a single chest x-ray, no need to do an inspiratory or an expiratory film, so usually if their patient's well enough, it can be a PA film uh, around in the department, um, preferably we take as big an inspiration as possible. Um, once the patient's back in the department, we can have a look at the chest x-ray, and usually the two things we look at, one are how well the patient is, the other one is what's the size of the pneumothorax, which we measure at the level of the hilum and not at the apex, which you were telling me earlier, that's what they do in America. So they so do in America. I've looked at the uh, BMJ uh, thorax, and they were mentioning, but there's still no mention of a, a number. But uh, in America, they measure from the apex uh, down, but uh, we measure at the level of the hilum. And uh, so we've, uh, we've got in front of us the, the BTS, uh, Plural Disease Guideline uh, 2010, Management for Spontaneous Pneumothorax, which we'll, we'll put on the Twitter and Facebook pages. Um, and it's uh, mentioning here the, the number of more than two centimetres as, a, as, a, as the benchmark. Yeah, so if the pneumothorax is more than two centimetres, um, or if it's less than two centimetres and the patient's sort of significantly symptomatic and breathless, then the first option that we can do is to aspirate, uh, which involves, well, different methods. Um, here at Queen's, we actually use a chest drain, a small Seldinger chest drain, uh, and we place that into the chest and aspirate air from the chest, um, usually up to 2.5 litres. If we go beyond that, then you can assume that there's an ongoing air leak. If the patient's improving, we send them around for a chest x-ray. And if the pneumothorax is now less than 2 centimetres and the patient's asymptomatic, then we'll remove the selling a chest drain and consider discharge. Uh, just a quick word about the insertion of a Seldinger chest drain though. So something you don't uh, see uh, taught in textbooks or indeed when uh, you're taught to place a chest drain but the uh, angle of entry of your original needle uh, dictates the end point of where your chest drain will end up. So if you're inserting your uh, needle at uh, perpendicular to the skin you will essentially have a chest drain that will sit at the hyler of the lungs. If you angle the uh, a chest, uh, sorry, angle the needle towards uh, the head end, essentially the chest drain should end up at the head end. And so what is the right angle of insertion that you want then? So essentially you want to go for as a shallow angle as, per, as possible. Um, so anything uh, less than 45 degrees would be useful, but bear in mind that you have got to get between uh, rib space. So the, the, the shallower the angle, the more difficult it will be to thread your uh, chest drain through because you have run the risk of it kinking so I tend to aim for a 45 degree angle and uh, what happens then if you are aspirating and you're getting more than, than two and a half litres of air what, what's our next port of call so I think if you're getting more than two and a half litres you need to sort of think actually this is an ongoing leak into the, uh, uh, the space between the lung and the chest wall and at that point, you need to attach a underwater seal 
to prevent um, air being stuck back into the chest. Um, this allows air to drain away um, and hopefully will allow sufficient amount of the lung to then expand. At this point, we've made a decision the patient needs to be admitted um, for observation, usually to a respiratory ward if they're stable. So, um, we talked about, so you've mentioned just then about uh, admitting patients. Um, when we're looking for discharge fill, what do we need to sort of consider? So essentially they need to be uh, symptom free mm -hmm. uh, and also their chest drain uh, should not have drained for 24 hours. Um, and then if the chest drain has stopped draining at uh, 24 hours, then we um, clamp off the chest drain um, and then we remove the chest drain and repeat the x-ray. Okay, and we're happy with the x-ray? Uh, happy with the x-ray then these patients can be discharged and they get followed up in a respiratory clinic um, with the proviso that they cannot fly for six weeks um, because obviously if they develop a pneumothorax inside a tin can at 30,000 feet uh, you'll have to hope that there's some doctor on board that can perform some form of heroics. That's what you're getting into with the uh, I saved a patient's life with just a ballpoint pen and a you know and just my bare wit yes bare wit. Yeah, yeah pretty much um, the other thing is that uh, these patients, um, if they have got a hobby uh, uh, with regard to scuba diving, that you've then now stopped that hobby and they have to do something more land-based. Because again, if they develop a pneumothorax in a pressurised environment under the water, then bad things will happen. Although they can have a bilateral pleurodesis, um, which will then allow them to go and uh, carry on with their scuba diving career. All depends how into their scuba diving career Absolutely. they are. So, Phil is now leaving to go shopping in Leicester. <laughs> Bye, Phil. Bye. Enjoy. Thank you. Uh, so then, Bill, um, now then there were two. Um, so, what about our patient whose um, pneumothorax is too small to sort of aspirate? They've still got a pneumothorax. What are we going to do so for our patient? So, basically, as long as these patients are asymptomatic and as long as um, they're comfortable and we control any discomfort they've got and they're happy to go home, um, then they can be discharged arranging follow-up in an outpatient clinic in two to four weeks um, where they have follow-up chest x-ray and investigations if necessary. Um, the advice that we give to these patients um, is to obviously return to the emergency department if they get suddenly much more short of breath, the pain's not managed, discharge them with adequate analgesia, tell them about diving, you're not to dive ever, can't fly um, until six weeks after you've had a normal chest x-ray um, and basically I suppose just come back to us if they're worried about anything. Um, mm. The most important advice I think though is that commonly these happen in patients with um, who smoke and patients who smoke are at a much greater risk of having a second pneumothorax so it's very important to get them to understand this and to offer smoking cessation advice uh, when they're discharged and make sure that that's pressed the game when, they f uh, when they're followed up. Mm. Um, I think the smoking usually that's to do with the, uh, the smoking causes a thinning of the um, outer lining of the chest wall so it increases the risk of getting small blebs which can then rupture which is often the normal cause of a small pneumothorax. Mm. And I suppose uh, for those with secondary pneumothorax, pneumothoraces, uh, think about things like COPD, that's the, the presence of bulla, isn't it? Yes, yeah, usually, yes. So yeah, the so emphysematous changes, the bulla that's there, that, that's pockets of air that's already there that, that can pop 
So I suppose another thing to be aware of, uh, Bill, is, is there's quite a high uh, rate of, of recurrence of primary spontaneous pneumothorax, and, and that needs to be communicated to our patients, doesn't it? So, yeah, there can be um, up to 50% uh, in some of the literature says that people who continue to smoke will, 50% of them will have a recurrence within the next four years after their first pneumothorax. And um, I suppose throughout all of this, it's very important to, to keep... Um, other differentials in mind for anybody presenting with acute shortness of breath, um, you know, other causes of potentially a silent chest, such as you know the severe to life-threatening forms of asthma. Yeah, um, but again, bilateral symptoms, so it's hopefully unilateral symptoms, um, and fingers crossed if it's a primary pneumothorax, not too unwell. Mm. Um, we can manage quite well with just one lung. Um, unfortunately, those patients that come in with a secondary pneumothorax can be incredibly unwell because they lose such a huge volume of lung. Mm. in already compromised respiratory system so uh, they can be quite significantly short of breath and hypoxic when they arrive in the department. Mm. And do you have a guideline on, on what sort of saturations you would aim for well, with your patients and, and their work of breathing? So in terms of um, with secondary pneumothoraxes do you mean? Well, well just both, generally with primary so and with secondary. Um, Personally, within uh, normal values, so for somebody with no underlying lung disease, then you're aiming for sort of 95% and above, really, um, and 88 to 92% for people with COPD um, and uh, no evidence of uh, tachypnea or significant pain. Um, I mean, interestingly, with secondary pneumothoraxes, so the patients with underlying lung disease, um, we are going to admit all of these patients, none of them are going to be discharged. So even the ones that we actually deem do not require a chest drain, and we're actually going to uh, manage them conservatively, uh, then we need to admit them under respiratory with high flow oxygen and observe them for at least 24 hours to make sure that it's not suddenly getting worse because mm -hmm. they can present in a more life-threatening manner than uh, a primary pneumothorax. Mm. And um, I mean, a, a question I get asked quite a lot by students uh, about chest drains is when they ask about these terms that they hear, like a bubbling chest drain, a, a swinging uh, okay. sort of chest drain. So can we just, just talk so, a little bit about what that means? And so if we go back to our primary pneumothorax, it's got a large collapse that, say, for example, we've aspirated over two and a half litres and it's still, we're still aspirating air and thinking that there's a, a leak there. Then when we attach the, uh, to the underwater seal, uh, what we're actually looking for to make sure that we're in the right space is when the patient takes a breath in and out we see the drain swinging which means that the level of water moves up and down as the pressure changes and bubbling is that one-way bubbling that occurs when you get the patient to take a really big deep breath which expands the lung and then hopefully pushes uh, enough air through that it bubbles out and actually because of the seal and the water stops any more air being sucked back into the chest so there are uh, bubbling and swinging chest drains. So it's a sign that A, it's in the right a, place. A, it's in the right place. B, it's working. It's working, absolutely. So, and uh, things which are actually important to document once you've attached your drain. That was the Take Orally Spontaneous Pneumothorax podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us there to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.